Before we jump into season five, episode one, my conversation with Peter Levine, this is Andrew Seligson, and I am here with Emily Shields, director of Iowa and Minnesota Campus Compact. And for those of you who are part of that crossover compact nation, Emily in Paris audience, this is Emily in the Paris of Iowa, the capital city of Des Moines. Bonjour, Emily. Bonjour. We don't have a Paris here, but we do have a Madrid that we pronounce Madrid. Madrid. Okay. So you're not in the Madrid of Iowa. No. Uh, you're in Des Moines. I get, it is a French word. I mean, Des Moines. It is. Yeah. It's, it's supposedly French for something about rivers. Des Moines. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, isn't the word for lack? Moins? Like, isn't, I think so. I know, I feel, I, now I'm feeling like I need to Google this. Need to Google it. I, I, I want to make clear. I should have committed to memory by now. There is a river and whatever else is true, because I associated okay, lack. The monks? It the monks. The monks. Okay. <laughs> so, it's a very monastic city, I as guess. It, as it turns out, I don't really know. Oh, yeah. river of the monks. River of the monks. Sure. I mean, that's. Part of where that comes from. I, I, it's funny because I've been to Des Moines, as you know, a number of times. And I always see like canoeing monks and kayaking monks. So it's, yeah, it's lot, like the lot river. Of a lot of monks on the river. Listen, French explorers i'm putting into air quotes yes uh decided to give it this name and there you are and it's a lovely city i will say that uh got a great uh, minor league baseball stadium it has a fantastic art museum a beautiful state capitol building better restaurants and bars every day well probably not during a pandemic i have to admit that but it used to be that it was on like a 25 year upswing of just getting better and better i've lived here for 15 years and it's changed pretty dramatically so when we can visit places and do things again uh yeah come on down come to the point as i said i've enjoyed my time there quite a bit so emily we are having a conversation to share with our listeners the sad news that you will no longer be among the triple threat co-hosting team of the Compact Nation podcast. We're, we're sad about that. Yeah, it's sad, but true. Um, As everyone knows, things like a pandemic make you reevaluate your capacity, your priorities, what you have time to spend on. I have so loved being a part of this podcast, um, helping getting it, helping to get it off the ground, experimenting with it. talking to so many great interviewees and I have to uh, drop the mic one final time for for at least a little while here to really focus on our member campuses in Iowa and Minnesota and our team and and just make sure we can be successful with with so much going on. Well, Emily, I have appreciated working with you on this podcast from the very beginning, initially with JR and more recently with Marisol. And uh, Marisol and I will carry forward. Folks might hear some, some different voices uh, in the episodes ahead. For now, it'll be a, a duo, a dynamic duo, I will contend. And uh, yeah, so thank you for your contributions to the podcast, as well as, of course, more broadly in our network and the world of higher education engagement. I can thank you for those anytime I want to. So I'll do that now. And uh yeah, we uh, wish you well in your endeavors. We obviously get to see you in other contexts, so that's excellent. And uh, now we will head into Season 5, Episode 1, and our conversation with Peter Levine. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, I'm Marisol Morales. I'm Andrew Seligson, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Marisol, we have had a presidential election. We have had news that there might be a vaccine coming sooner than than at least we feared, I guess no sooner than we hoped. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good about both of those things. And so are my dogs. So are your dogs. Pandemic participants in the podcast. The puppies are excited. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think, well, I'm sure different people feel differently about the election. That's the nature of these things. At the same time, I think probably many people, no matter what, feel good about being on the other side of it. It got done. Uh, It seems like it went off reasonably smoothly, given the extraordinary challenges of doing it in the middle of a pandemic. 5,000 young people we helped recruit at Campus Compact were working, polling places around the country, helping make it smooth for people. That was exciting to know that was happening. So, yes, much, much to feel good about. What what is... uh, What's particularly on your mind in Chicago, in Illinois, in the middle of the country? Well, it was really interesting. There were a lot of like car horns beeping and a lot of excitement on on Saturday, people partying on the street. Um, I think one of the things, um, at least in Illinois, um, the the graduated income tax didn't pass. So um, that means that there's going to probably be some really steep cuts. in the state, um, and so that's uh, bad because they were supposed to do it more of a fair income tax, so it depended on how much you you earned and um, graduated the tax rate. So that's unfortunate. Uh, but I think overall, the anxiety of like waiting for the results, um, and then you know, again, depending on where you landed, um, getting those results on on Saturday. Here, um, it's a particularly blue area, so folks were pretty happy with the results. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about the, the contrast between what happened with candidates and what happened with ballot measures. I think there were many states where there were surprising contrasts in the way those things went. You know, I know people were pointing to Florida where um, the Republican presidential candidate won and a minimum wage increase passed. California, the Democrats obviously do extremely well all the time out there, but the protections for uh, drivers of Ubers and Lyfts failed. Here in Massachusetts, uh, a ballot measure for ranked choice voting failed. And, you know, in that case, at least from my perspective, there was very little public discussion of it in advance. I think most people probably didn't really understand it very well. And you know, there was I, I feel like with a lot of the ballot measures, there was so little oxygen for anything other than the presidential race and the pandemic that people just didn't end up focusing on them, uh, which is is too bad. It doesn't obviously people can disagree about these things, but I feel like they disagree better if they've gotten a real chance to learn and discuss. And that didn't seem to really happen. Yeah. But, and I know here, like in Illinois with the tax, like the city, Chicago and the uh, collar area supported it, but the rest of the state did not. And so just thinking about the ways that on sort of topics or ballot measures, the, the conversation needs to be spread throughout the, the state. Um, 
and spaces need to be made for folks to really understand the impact of, of those. I think that's such an interesting example because as I understand it from reading about it, the, the change in taxation structure would have looked at from one perspective, would have been a transfer of wealth from Chicago and its suburbs to the rest of the state, particularly Southern Illinois. And yet, you know, that's where the opposition came from. And obviously it's okay if people don't support policies that would benefit them personally, like that's okay. But you wonder again, whether people really understood it when you see the way it shook out. Yeah. Well, I just think also it's the urban rural divide that we have here. Um, You know, the 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 city area where there's a concentration of um, of population tends to be blue where the rest of the state right is is a bit more red and so you know again the ways that folks that for a statewide um, initiative or, or policy how do you begin to bridge those divides in really important ways and fortunately the interview that we're going to be sharing a little bit later is i think a good a good jumping off point for thinking through how we move in the direction of getting toward better public conversations and engagement with public issues so we will uh, share that in, in just a few minutes but marisol i know you had a few announcements to share so uh, I'll give you the floor. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. So yes, a few things for our listeners. One is we are running another set of courses for our Fusion course, which is focused on online uh, teaching and community engagement. So we have, um, and there's still slots available for a session that runs December 1st through the 18th. And then there is another session that runs January 4th through 15th. We'll be making announcements uh, later on about our uh, spring schedule for the fusion course but um it's a great course focused on uh, faculty and community engagement professionals as they um you know look at their online courses uh especially those focused on community engagement uh, and how to make those inclusive uh environments how to uh, create community and how to be um best serve students in this online setting so folks can check that out also our national webinar series is uh, up and running and so our next webinar is november 19th and that one's focused on assessment um, and then finally our newman civic fellows applications uh, and nominations are open so check that out those are due february uh, 1st you do need to be a member campus in order to nominate a fellow so if you have not joined yet there's still always an opportunity you can reach out to us at compact.org um, and via email, and we will follow up with you about membership opportunities. Yes, we will. Thank you for those. Uh, so yeah, we are uh, ready to pivot toward our interview for this episode. I had the opportunity to sit down pretty much uh, almost immediately after we knew what the outcome of the presidential election was with Uh, A person I think of as one of the nation's leading thinkers about civic life, civic education, civic learning, the kind of intersection among those. Peter Levine is the associate dean of academic affairs and the Lincoln Feline professor of citizenship and public affairs in the Jonathan Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University. That is a long. How long uh, is his card? It's a, yeah, he must have more like, yeah. um, it must like flip out into several Where's pieces around or something. his neck, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so Peter is both uh, a an accomplished researcher. He was 
from the beginning involved in Circle, where he eventually became the director. So as some of you know, Circle is the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement, now housed at Tufts University in Tisch College. He uh, has published uh, I think about seven books, one of which uh, is We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting for, The Promise of Civic Renewal in America. Uh, he's got a number of other books on civic culture, civic life, as well as he's he's published a novel. So he's done a lot of different things. Uh, Peter serves on a whole bunch of different boards and is in other ways a very active contributor to the development of practical efforts to increase uh, civic participation, the serious public discussion of important issues, uh, and the, the kinds of civic learning efforts that Campus Compact is a part of. Um, and so we sat down together to talk about uh, the work that he has done, but really to talk about what we can learn from the election and the campaign that preceded it and what kinds of opportunities we have going forward to build the kinds of civic education and civic renewal efforts that I think many of us feel like we need right now. So we, uh, I now turn to my conversation with Peter. Peter Levine, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. <laughs> Honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> it's very nice to have you. Uh, and it's an interesting morning. I'll just let folks know we are recording this on the Monday morning uh, following the call by the, the major news networks that Joe Biden has won the 2020 presidential election. We have also just this morning seen very promising, although inconclusive news about the possibility of a vaccine coming from Pfizer. So it seems like a particularly good moment to look forward. There's still a lot that's uncertain. There are legal challenges still pending with respect to the election. The news about the vaccine is obviously highly preliminary, but uh, it is a moment when we can at least take some stock and envision a future that starts to look a little bit different from the recent past. And, and that's kind of the conversation I think we want to have this morning. So Peter, I, I wanted to start just by asking you to look back a little bit. You're somebody who's been thinking about, writing about, engaged in efforts to change civic life in the United States for a long time. And the period of the last few years, since 2016 or 2015 maybe, has felt, I think for many people, different from other periods in that context. And I'm wondering if, if you might just talk a little bit about things that have become clearer to you or less clear to you during this period, things you think you've learned or things that you kind of had to give up as ideas you held. Just, just what looks different now uh, mm -hmm. than it did when, say, Donald Trump descended the escalator uh, in 2015? Yeah. Uh, or, or even a little bit broader timeline. I, I, I mean, I got into this business, I think probably you did too, when a lot of the conversations about why people weren't participating. Um, and we, we talked about turnout declines and we talked about young people had uh, even particularly high, tur uh, large turnout decline. But uh, this election looks like it'll probably be, the, in, in my view, the highest turnout in American history. Um, they're saying the highest turnout since 1900, but 1900, a lot of people were disenfranchised. So I think this will be the highest turnout in American history. So you can't really use a, a decline uh, of turnout thesis. People are mobilized. Um, people are mobilized. I think um, 
you know, there's a very important debate about what those who voted for Donald Trump were voting for. Uh, and I think there's room for multiple interpretations of that. So I don't want to treat it as if I just know. But I mean, one, one concern is that they were voting against democratic norms. Um, and, cert- and certainly one thing that's noteworthy is that both Donald Trump and other leading Republicans don't talk favorably about the word democracy, which, for example, Ronald Reagan did quite eloquently. So that's a change. And so um, I, I, I think I would, I would say one more big picture point, which is that I, I grew up sort of in this business thinking that we had a sort of stable political regime um, that was going to continue to do its thing that wasn't very enthusiastically supported by the people because it, uh, it seemed they didn't like it completely. I mean, it's, it's levels of support were not very high and we needed to kind of build things around that basic regime that would engage people better. So, so Congress was one thing that's going to do its thing. Congress is going to keep on doing its thing. We need to create spaces for people to do uh, civic work outside of the institution. But now I just wonder whether the basic regime is stable at all, whether it's supported by enough people and whether it's well enough designed. And so that raises a whole bunch of different questions that I didn't think about as much, say, in the 1990s or the early 2000s. So, yeah, let's stick with with another, because you just said a number of interesting yeah. things. Uh, do you see a relationship between those very high levels of mobilization and the instability of the regime? Like, if, for those of us who were so eager to get more people involved, is this a be careful what you wish for situation or are those two separate phenomena that have come together in time? How, how do you understand the relationship between those things? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, and I don't really know the answer, but I don't think we should say, boy, we wish the turnout was lower. I mean, our, our turnout is still lower than um, Michael McDonald from University of Florida is estimating that two thirds of eligible uh, Americans voted. So that's still pretty lousy compared to a European country. And, um, they, they, or, or a number of other democracies around the world and, and they don't collapse. So I think we could, we could, and in, in fact, there's, a, there's an argument that if we got up to 80%, um, the extra people would be a little less, uh, polarized and dug in and it might actually be easier, easier to govern. Um, but I, I think at a minimum, we, we figured out if we didn't already know it, that, um, turnout is not the only thing to worry about and that you can have a lot of mobilization in a way that's not actually helpful to the, uh, to the system. You can have mobilization that's helpful or you can have mobilization that's not helpful. And, um, I don't think anybody thinks that our political culture is better now than it was, but our turnout's higher. So they're obviously not the same thing. And when you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of kind of having thought that, there was regime stability, but what was essential was kind of getting people engaged in spaces that were outside the system and in civic life that distinct from kind of formal politics. Is your sense that that might be the way, the way to restore stability if there were more engagement in those kinds of, uh, yeah, those kinds of spaces or what do you now see as the relationship between those things? Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually increasingly skeptical that you can, uh, kind of build things around the main system and, and expect it to the main system to survive, but just to be a little more concrete. I mean, I was thinking about things like, like deliberative exercises. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, in a very concrete way where we, we do the, um, Massachusetts citizen, citizen initiative review in Massachusetts. So it's not really separate from the political system. It's sort of an ancillary piece. So in that, in that instance, um, 
random people are selected, literally random people are selected to meet for three or four days and write an explanation of the ballot initiative um, that faces the people. So the, so, uh, you know, the basic system is we've got a legislature that passes laws. In the progressive era, they added an, a, a piece to it, which was the referendum. And in the 21st century, a bunch of people have added another piece to it, which is the a, a jury-like body that um, evaluates the referendum. So that's the kind of strategy of building things up around the system that um, w- that I was referring to. So it's it's not completely separate spaces. We need those two completely separate spaces. You know, your religious con- congregation or your neighborhood or whatever. These are sort of ancillary. Um, uh, uh, pieces that that fill out the, the political system and make it more participatory. But I I used to believe a lot in those, and now I think that if the core of the system is broken, you're not going to prop it up with a lot of little buttresses like that. It's, it needs fun, more fundamental reform. So in a minute, I'll want to dig into some of those ideas, like what what sorts of reform and to what ends. Uh, I, I want to continue with the question of kind of building out the picture as you see what's happened. And you mentioned the very high levels of mobilization. One measure of that obviously is turnout in the, in the recent election. What else are you looking at when you think about people being mobilized? Mm-hmm. What are other indicators that, that are important to you uh, that are showing up in different ways? Yeah. So thanks for asking that because that's really important because I don't think it shows voting. So one, one um, huge piece is, is the conventional uh, political acts other than voting, things like asking other people to vote or, um, or canvassing or making phone calls or giving money. And, um, all those seem to be dramatically up. I mean, I pay most attention to young people because I used to direct circle and circle is finding, you know, astronomically high rates of electoral participation, things like uh, asking somebody else to vote. But the other piece that's at least as important is social movement mobilization. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying Black Lives Matter is the biggest social movement in American history in terms of the number of people involved. And uh, I, I think this is a fundamental transformation because many, many people identify with one or more social movements to different degrees actually doing anything. I mean, some people identify without really lifting a finger, but it means that if you convene a bunch of Americans in any kind of setting, the people sitting there in front of you are are social movement participants or they identify as such. Um, they literally think of themselves as, you know, I'm, I'm with Sunrise or I'm with Black Lives Matter or I'm with um, uh, Tea Party. And uh, so I think it changes the fundamental texture of American life to have so many people involved in social movements. And when you think about why, because I, as you said, uh, for me, this frame of we used to worry about apathy and how to engage people in mobilization. And now we worry, not worry, but we kind of reflect on how to respond to the very high levels of mobilization. That, that feels like an accurate description of my own professional uh, trajectory and, and what's been mm-hmm. on my mind lately. Yeah. So, to what do you attribute the change? Like, in other words, I don't, I don't think we suddenly uh, succeeded to a massive extent that we weren't before. And all of a sudden everybody got in the streets and yet everybody's in the streets and they're voting at higher rates and whatever. Uh, what, what do you think, partly because you mentioned a number of different social movements that um, some have deeper and longer term roots and whatever. What, what do you think this, yeah, what do you think are the best explanations for what's happened? Right. Well, and right. And if you take something like, for example, Black Lives Matter has a continuity going all the way back to the civil rights movement, which has roots going all the way back to the 19th century. So why do things rise up at different times? Um, and, and, uh, 
and what and how how do the sort of modes of operation suddenly expand? Um, so so you know it, uh, the march on Washington where Martin Luther King gave I have a dream speech was the biggest such march in American history. So they had organized in a new way and accomplished uh, an amazing mobilization. But now we have. Uh, for example, coordinated marches and, and protests in many, many cities. It's another rate. It's another level. Um, and how did we, how do we suddenly have that? Um, I mean, one answer that's not right is, is that it's reaction to Donald Trump because it precedes him. I mean, it just reminding everybody that um, both the Tea Party and then Black Lives Matter were pre-Trump phenomena and they won't go away either. And it's um, a mistake to think of Black Lives Matter as, as resistance to Trump because it'll be resisting Joe Biden. I'm, pretty sure. Um, so yeah, so, so I didn't answer your question. So we need, we do need an explanation for why these things have burgeoned in the 20, in the 21st century. I mean, people would look to technology and obviously as, as, as worth thinking about, is it because you can use social media to mobilize? Um, to admit, I'm always a little skeptical about that, uh, partly because I think the mechanisms for mobilization well, because because they used phones and faxes pretty pretty effectively in the past. So I don't know. I, I think I didn't answer your question. I it's hard. I, I I mean, I was actually asking in part because I don't feel like yeah. I know. I mean, I do yeah. think it's uh, um, yeah, it's hard. It's actually hard to explain. I think it's also probably a several separate phenomena that are that then interact with each other. Why Tea Party people mobilized is very different from why the people who came together around Black Lives Matter mobilized, but they also are related to each other. Uh, in the sense that one ups the ante and the stakes and the challenge and, and can help to mobilize others and, and back and forth in that way. Uh, well, and, and there's some learning about, about uh, nuts and bolts stuff across that goes across. So I think, uh, you know, the tea party was famous for occupying congressional district offices. And then when Trump was elected, that's exactly what the other side did, um, taking it right out of their playbook. So, um, one, one thing that doesn't, uh, you know, there's this international discussion that, uh, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan and others are having, which says that uh, nonviolent social movements increased in, in a frequency and became more and more effective as the later 20th century, as the 20th century ended and the 21st century began. And so their, their win rate was really quite remarkably high. This is global. But then they say um, just lately, like in the last 10 years, their success rate has fallen a lot. And I think the um, basic explanation is that the that authoritarian states around the world have gotten better at handling them, much more effective at, uh, at base and basically their success, the success of nonviolent social movements back when I was sort of coming up, like in the late eighties and early nineties was partly because the, the authoritarians were a bunch of almost senile old guys who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and they were taken down because they were relatively easy to be taken down. And it's a lot harder to deal with. Uh, so when you see, uh, uh, the People's Republic of China basically dealing with the protests in Hong Kong. I think that's pretty emblematic of our of our time. Uh, it's 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 a highly competent suppression. So I'm not sure that's relevant, except that um, we we have efforts at at suppression in America, but I don't think they're terribly competent. Um, they don't seem to be winning. So I want to. You, you mentioned your particular interest in young people, an interest I share. Uh, yeah, and. The, you know, when we think about, obviously, they're, they're part of this story about increased mobilization. And I'm wondering if you, uh, when you think about young people's mobilization, how does it seem kind of continuous with broader mobilization? Or what would you 
say is distinctive about the way or the issues uh, that young people are mobilized right now around? I mean, I think I think that uh, it's continuous, but I think the degree of social movement participation is is really higher. There's a kind of break there. It's it's high, much higher than it is for older people, and it's higher than it was for young people even 10 years ago. So, um, and circles, polls on that show it, uh, the proportion of people who've been involved, for example, in a protest of young people is pretty high and uh, higher than it used to be. I think maybe also the ideological uh, spectrum has broadened, although I'm not sure. I mean, there's always been a campus left, um, but I think it's a bit more robust, I think, um, more intellectually grounded, more more new writing to draw on, for example, more both uh, from sort of uh, a racial justice angle and also just democratic socialism. Um, so I think, and then, then there's national, one thing you need for a, for a movement is, is uh, leaders you can point to who are inspirational. So, you know, it kind of matters that AOC is in Congress. Um, there is also a campus right, uh, both a sort of libertarian campus right that doesn't like Trump very much and a, and a Trump pro-Trump campus right. So maybe the ideological spectrum is a little broader and more robust on the edges than it was, but I'm not completely sure I could demonstrate that. What do you think? I mean, a, a thing that has seemed true to me, although I haven't really seen, I don't think, empirical evidence of it, is a... Like, I think from the perspective of many people sort of center on toward the right, it appears that the students who are engaged are somehow essentially a feature of the Democratic coalition or something, Democratic Party coalition, that is to say. And my sense is that that's not the case and that, um, I mean, I think you said earlier, right, that Black Lives Matter would be challenging Joe Biden. But I also think there's a very distinctive generational flavor and a sense of on the kind, you know, especially I think because climate change plays such a big role, um, but but a broader sense that the folks, uh, you know, at the controls don't have the interests of younger people at heart and frankly don't know what they're doing on bigger questions. Does that seem like a tr- true true account to you? And uh, what just what are your thoughts about that? No, I think I agree. I mean, one one little caveat is that that may also be a feature of being young. <laughs> uh, so I kind of remember that from the eighties as well. That was sort of our attitude as well. <laughs> so I don't know, but I think it's probably more accentuated, and they have better reason um, to feel that way about uh, certainly the being let down. So so I mean, I think that, you know the the extinction rebellion kind of language, which says we're being killed by you older people, is pretty pronounced. Um, I also just agree with your your first premise, which is that you shouldn't stereotype young people as part of the democratic coalition, because that's just too simplifying. I mean, there are conservative young people, there are, um, there are, there are independents in the classic traditional sense of not, of, of sort of being swing voters. Um, there's of course a, a campus left, which definitely doesn't like the democratic party and which might see the democratic party as the main problem, um, because it's to the left of the democratic party. So, and there's a, and there's a lot of, uh, antipathy to think structures like parties, although um, that's, that's the part where I wonder if that's always the case for young people. So maybe let's uh, turn a little bit toward um, some of the implications of, of the kind of context shifting that we've been talking about for people who are focused on civic education, on engaging young people. Again, we've, we've talked about already the idea that uh, the kind of overcoming apathy, getting young people involved model seems 
uh, out of sync with the world we're in right now. But what are the what are your thoughts about what ought to replace it? Like, what should we be doing in the context of civic education, given the kinds of challenges we're actually facing in our civic life, the levels of mobilization, but also, as you describe, some of the kind of basic questions about commitment to democratic norms, et cetera. Like what, what, what ought to be our goals as we think in a different way about uh, civic education and engaging youth? I mean, one way, thanks for the question. I mean, one way to think about it is, um, you know, the classic civic education, which I, I do rebel against, um, sort of starts by telling people what the system of government is as envisioned by the United States constitution. Uh, and then, and then ask them basically to understand it so they can use it and um, and also so they can respect and uphold it. And then it maybe ends with something like a deliberation about a current events or something like that. But one of the problems with that is that the constitution itself does not even name or envision some of the key factors that are around us, like the internet and social media and like um, political parties, which aren't envisioned there um, or social movements. So uh, I would, I would, start by just changing the, especially for K-12 civic education, but college too, just change the topic to some extent. So um, yeah, I think people should know about the three branches of government, but honestly, there aren't just three branches of government. There's there's a um, gigantic bureaucracy, there's a permanent military, there are political parties, there's um, so there's social media. Uh, and so that's, that's what we should be studying. And then it, it leads to very pragmatic consequences. So when you talk about social media, you really do need to learn how to deal with it. And I don't know how to deal with it uh, very well either. We all need, right. Um, you, you, you do a good job. I, I follow you, but um, it's hard. It's hard to um, for any of us to handle the social media environment, but I would make that a very high priority for civic education. Uh, likewise, um, social movements. I mean, social movements, uh, there's a lot to be learned about how to do a social movement. Well, um, and, uh, I think, I think the common understanding of it, especially as reflected in things like textbooks is very misleading because it, it, uh, the common understanding I, I see my students have this is that basically social movements are protests, uh, and the, and the main manifestation of a social movement is a protest. And I, I don't think that's true at all. I think protests are kind of useful for social movements for certain purposes, like among other things, recruitment. If you have a big protest, you can a lot of people will show up and you can take their names uh, and write them down in a list, but actually protests are, are just the tip of the iceberg of social movement change. So people should be learning that and they do teach themselves and that's very impressive. So I'm not like the old guy telling the black lives matter, learn how to do social movements. They know better than I do, but actual social movement leaders are, are still pretty rare in our society as a whole. And your average, um, you know, college freshman doesn't know how a social movement works. Uh, and I think should learn that. So it's a, so in short, it's a different uh, array of topics, and there's a lot of pragmatic stuff to be learned as you study those topics. So it's not just textbook knowledge, but it's how do we actually curate a good Twitter feed, or how do we actually organize a, a social movement? I think one of the things that that's maybe puzzling, uh, especially for for practitioners, probably especially in K twelve, but I think in higher ed as well, is you know the, the some of the factors that you pointed to early in terms of the earlier in the conversation in terms yeah. of concerns about regime stability suggest that 
kind of what would be useful is some kind of an education that moves us in the direction of consensus of rebuilding uh, some kind of stability, which I think people automatically think or not automatically, but tend to think of as landing in the middle somewhere. And, and so if stability is your goal, it sounds like rebuilding consensus ought to be. And so that's might involve one form of education or one set of goals. And what I heard you describing was something that actually had a kind of change orientation that we should be supporting young people in developing their capacities to lead and participate in effective efforts to make change. And I'm wondering what you think of the relationship between those and whether, whether there is a, a, the, the level of stability that we need or that would be desirable for us that is achievable if there is large-scale change that still needs to be made or how, how educators ought to think about those two values. Yeah. So that's, that last part is the, is what I was starting to worry about as you spoke or think about as you spoke, because it was just, what should educators do? Because that's a special role. So, I mean, you could, you could debate what the Republic needs and there would be a good debate about does the Republic need sort of more of a center um, or does the Republic need a broader palette of, of options? Um, so does the rise of the left of, in the Democratic Party help or challenge the Republic. And I, I would be more on the side of um, the Republic needs a broader palette of options and the possibility of more of deeper change. And that's not going to be uncontroversial. And that the, that the, um, that the, the uh, process changes that we need are actually going to be uh, pretty controversial and that we need them. Uh, but there's a different question about what the role of um, educators is because we are not supposed to be because, because in some degree of impartiality is, is appropriate and, and right. And so, we're not supposed to be driving students towards some particular kind of social change. I mean, I feel that incredible tension over the impartiality question in colleges right now, like I've never seen before. I mean, the, um, you know, the various departments of our academic departments, like the education department or the sociology department of our university are issuing elaborate statements about racial justice this summer with not just sort of we're for racial justice, but lots of points um, of what exactly that means, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's because the university decided to be formally anti-racist, which I support because we, because racism is bad and we should be anti-racist, but I've, I've also never seen university so clearly not being partial about a whole bunch of rather specific issues. So, so for a, for a department to envision itself as something that can make a statement that's quite detailed it's pretty interesting, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying to, I'm hedging a little here because I'm not saying it's bad. Just saying we're deal, we're renegotiating the question of impartiality and pluralism and, and, uh, and I'm worried we could, we could get that wrong. So as educators, I think maybe we shouldn't, um, we should be pretty careful about thinking that we're a node in a social movement. Uh, you know, I wrote a little piece for the AAC news, um, journal, what is it, liberal education, about how MLK, Martin Luther King saw colleges and universities during the social, during the heat of the social movement. And um, I think he didn't envision even the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities as parts of the social movement, because he thought that they were places for separate reflection. And when he, he was desperately trying to go back to Morehouse to teach for a semester, um, I yeah, he did it one semester, but mostly he tried to go because then he would get, it would be too busy. But if he had gone back to Morehouse, he would have taught the history of Western philosophy in the classroom. 
he wouldn't have taught participation in the social movement. And I think his view of an educator was quite removed. Now, I'm not saying that's right. And actually, it's been sort of challenged in subsequent years. But it's an interesting baseline to imagine, you know, America's greatest leader of a social movement regarding colleges, not as part of the social movement, um, but as impartial spaces for, for reading about, for reading Plato and Nietzsche. And um, those, that was on his syllabus. Do, do you, I mean, I think one of the interesting, and this could take us down a longer channel that maybe we'll just go down a, a little bit, a little ways, but, you know, I think one of the changes certainly from when Martin Luther King was reflecting on the role of higher education in all this is that the status and role of the university has been redefined perhaps against its will, mostly from the political right in a way that m- maybe makes neutrality not an option or at least look very different. And I'm wondering if you think uh, there is still an option to try to stay a little bit uh, aloof or whether the question is about who's going to make the definition and whether maybe higher education needs to be more actively articulating the ways in which uh, it ought to be. And I don't know what your thoughts are about that. I think, no, I think these are really delicate, complicated questions that we all have to be thinking about. And, um, but with, with an eye to, well, there's competing values. They're, 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 they're competing and that's why it's hard. So not just thinking that it's simple. So just as a piece of information to think about, I, I read on the internet, maybe it's wrong, but I read on the internet that 97% of the people in the, um, dis- in the uh, precincts around Stanford University voted for Biden. 3% for Trump. So what do we make of this? I mean, one interpretation is Trump is antithetical to the values of Stanford University, including science and so on. And so, uh, by the way, if 97% are voting for Biden, that means not just your social sociology majors and your political science professors, it means your engineers, your computer scientists, your um, et cetera, business school professors. So one view is that, well, we have an administration that's antithetical to the basic values of the university. So the universities just can't be shouldn't be expected to be neutral. Um, by the way, if you think that, you should really think it should be have been different when Mitt Romney was the um, nominee, because I don't see him as antithetical to the interests of a university. But another another interpretation is we we actually have a, a problem because we've got of groupthink and of um, if ninety seven percent of people vote one way in an election in the community of a university, we have a problem of potential groupthink and um, and of also of sorting. So. What, uh, who are we educating if we, if it, if it starts to look like you have to be a Democrat to go to Stanford, um, then, you know, Republicans will go somewhere else and we, Democrats won't be, uh, liberal institutions won't be educating conservatives and vice versa. So that doesn't, that seems like a nightmare to me. So, um, and I guess in my own life, I try to, for what it's worth in my own life, I try to not be impartial because I think of myself as trying to pursue what's right and being partial for what's right. But I do try to challenge myself with points of view that I don't um, naturally agree with. And so my own way of navigating all this is to say that Donald Trump himself is not worth challenging myself with. I despise what he stands for and don't need to hear from him. But for example, this is a very good moment to take serious, pay serious attention to libertarian thought because there's too much, because that isn't Trump, it's different. And there's too much a danger of kind of groupthink since nobody in my environment likes libertarians that I am going to overlook what they teach. So, you know, so actually next weekend I'm spending 
um, 16 hours on Zoom with a bunch of, of classical liberals on a, in a conference reading abstruse uh, libertarian thought. But I think that's the right, well, I'm not looking forward to the Zoom. I think that's the right thing to do because, so anyway, that's a personal answer, but it feeds into my strategy as an educator because I do want my students to have to deal with ideas that they don't like. So I, I want to turn to some practical uh, yeah. possibilities, but it sounds like the first one is brush up on your Austrian German. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> trans, it's in trans, it's available <laughs> in translation. But Austrian, Austrian economics, yeah. <laughs> so if, yeah, for, for people who are really thinking about, you know, they, they run programs that are about uh, building citizen capacities among students. They are teaching courses where they have, devoted themselves to integrating experiential civic learning and building civic skills, in the kinds of ways when you think about the moment we're in and the kinds of possibilities that are before us, let's assume again, we're moving past this election. Let's even assume we can now see maybe a light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic and envision, you know, a following academic year where people can be among other people again. What are some thoughts you have about avenues that it might make sense for us to go down that, that perhaps have not been in the typical playbook uh, within kind of higher education, civic engagement, civic learning? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not sure that my views have changed on that because of the pandemic. And, and the um, one, one thing that's interesting to think about is whether, you know, everybody being virtual and on Zoom changes some opportunities. Um, but I haven't really got any good ideas on that score. But a, a little bit broader horizon is, um, I think I think experiential civic education is absolutely central. Uh, was underplayed, you know, for decades, and has been built up by organizations, in, including Campus Compact, and that's absolutely essential. And everybody should have an have experiential civic education. Complementing that is is a very rigorous um, analytical toolkit and, and, and academic study. And that's sort of my lane, um, for what it's worth. So I've been trying to drive that lane and, and, and at Tufts, we have, um, you know, a major in civic studies and it's, um, perhaps startlingly academic. I mean, you do have in, in the major, you have to take one internship course, but you have to read Austrian economics seriously. Um, and, uh, I, I do think we need to build continuously build that up. And, and it's for pragmatic reasons, because if I can just give an example quickly, you know, you have, uh, George Floyd is murdered by police in, in Minneapolis itself. So then you have a massive uprising and the Minneapolis, uh, city council is voting apparently to defund the police. And a few months later, they're voting not to defund the police. So what happened? And, um, you know, one explanation is just the pendulum swung. There was a social movement mobilization. It was effective, but it wasn't it was then not effective enough. But another explanation is that we don't have very clear ideas about how you would bring about um, social peace and uh, security without police. But that is a good analytical question. And actually it's one where you need libertarian thinking, <laughs> for example. So I'm, I'm, I'm using this, I hope this isn't just a rabbit hole, but as an example. Uh, so the example would be students should be understanding how to actually you know, march on city hall and confront power and everything. But they also should be thinking about what is public safety? Uh, how is it uh, produced? What are the options for its produce? What's, how, what is policing? Why is policing one option? What are other options? And this is very academic stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm arguing for academic rigor. Just as a, a kind of validation of what you just said, um, we recently had an event 
with our Newman Civic Fellows, uh, we'd ask them to talk about some issues they wanted us to kind of help them learn more about. One of them was police accountability. And we uh, had a lawyer who has worked, um, she's run civilian review boards. She's worked inside departments of corrections, trying to enforce law and policy. And it was a great conversation. The students were genuinely interested in understanding much more deeply. How do you build policies? How do you build procedures for review and fair structures that balance the need for some discretion and, and for officers protecting themselves and the, the legitimate needs of the citizens not to be under attack by people, you know, armed elements of the state. And, and again, I, so it's just to say, I think students are interested in those questions and ready to talk about them in a serious way. Absolutely. They totally are. Yeah, they totally are. And if anything, I think the intellectual intensity is higher than it's been. And that's great. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, is there anything else you'd want to tell us about the civic studies major and things that you've kind of learned as you've built and begun to implement that, that program for students? Uh, well, we have a distinctive, uh, you know, sort of core curriculum, which uh, I'm not saying is the right, is the only right one. In fact, in fact, I'm very interested in seeing other, other versions, which are, which look quite different, both in the U S and in other countries, but we do have a distinctive, um, curriculum. And I, I would say in some ways it's, it's classic civic education turned upside down because classic civic education does begin with the kind of the question, um, how does this government work and ends up with something about what should we do then? And civic, uh, civic studies begins with the question, what should we do? And it only gets to, uh, analyzing the structure of the U S government. Once you've gotten to the point where you think, well, maybe one of the things we should do is uh, influence the U.S. government, and then we better figure out how it works. Um, so the order is 100% reversed, or it's 180 degrees different, and it makes a difference because of the allocation of attention and time. So so, it, so figuring out the three branches of government is a quite sort of far down the path and might get left out if we don't get to it, instead of the reverse, which is that that's all you talk about. Peter, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you would want to add in about the issues we've been talking about or other issues? Um, we didn't we didn't talk too much about sort of social fake news, propaganda and so on. I just think that it's not like I have any solutions. I just think, though, that that's absolutely central to all of this. Um, it's and it's itself an interesting intellectual question. I mean, when did propaganda is pretty old, um, if maybe 2000 years old. and um, you know, so how much of this is new, but I think, I think there's a kind of, there is a kind of crisis around, um, reliability of information and news. Um, and, and, uh, and related to that, one of the most important changes in, in American civic life is that about half as many people are employed as, as reporters, as was the case 10 years ago, according to Pew, about half the jobs in, in as reporters have, have vanished. And, and more than half of the daily news reporters are in America are employed by either the Washington Post or the New York Times companies which is kind of terrifying. Um, so we've got a very different media environment and learning how to navigate that and how to generate the information that we need has got to be one of our top priorities. So we have a lot of work to do. I have, uh, I think we could say that about a number of areas. Uh, well, I just want to thank you so much for, for joining us for the conversation. Uh, I think, all of us are feeling uh, like there's a ton of work to do and uh, and we hope we have some greater opportunities in the coming months and years to, to get to it. So 
Thank you for taking I would love to hear what you're thinking about all this. I mean, it's the, the format is you ask me questions, but I'm actually very curious about your, your answers. So, uh, I, so I don't have a podcast, but uh, you should, you should <laughs> I'm interested in what you, what you think about these. Things. Well, we will continue the conversation for sure. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Welcome back from my conversation with Peter Levine. Hope you found that as interesting and engaging as I did when when Peter and I had the conversation. So this uh, season, and this is the first episode of that season, the fifth of the Compact Nation podcast, we had the feeling that a thing people could use right about now is uh, some continuing momentum for building optimism. So... We are going to have, uh, at the end of each episode, we're going to share some reasons for optimism. And I've got one for today. And it comes from our friends at Circle, which Peter and I mentioned. Uh, And again, that is uh, the research center focused on youth civic engagement at Tisch College at Tufts University. And uh, they have been sharing all kinds of data emerging from the recent election. And the, the piece that I wanted to share is just a top line number about youth turnout. So uh, right now, the conservative estimate that Circle is sharing is that about 50 to 52 percent of voting eligible young people ages 18 to 29 voted in the 2020 presidential election using the same methodology in 2016, that number was 42 to 44%. So it's up about eight to 10% over 2016. And they expect that once all the votes are counted, youth turnout will be even higher. They're thinking that it might go up as high as 56%. So we might end up seeing an increase of, of more than 10 points uh, which also looks like about almost a you know a twenty to twenty five percent increase in youth voting, which is pretty extraordinary, and it follows on similar gains made among youth in twenty eighteen compared to twenty fourteen. We also saw in twenty eighteen huge increases in student voting. We won't those numbers for various methodological reasons take longer to get the student turnout in particular, but we would expect, I think, to see significant increases in student turnout. So for those of us who spent a lot of our time uh, focused on the, the engagement of young people in public life, uh, this just seemed like a thing to be pretty hopeful about. That's great. And I don't want any more news stories about youth being apathetic. I'm just saying that is done past. So. Yeah, exactly. I think that that was a frame that, you know, as Peter and I discussed it, it made sense in a certain context. There was some data to support it. Uh, maybe it was always a little bit oversimplified, but it's just it is not the world we're living in now. And, um, you know, <laughs> I always think about it this way, that like given my age, m- my generation is probably at the apex of its influence and we need somebody else to do better than we've done. And so, you know, like the more young people involved, the better shot we have at seeing some kind of significant change. 
Absolutely. I think if anything, the summer, you know, and the way that youth turned up for the racial justice uh, marches and protests uh, and uprisings uh, shows their level of engagement, not only at the ballot box, but also when it comes to, uh, you know, on the street with their feet. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, Peter and I talked some about this, but when you think about it, all the way back to the Occupy movement, I would say, Mm -hmm. we saw this building and then the Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 and 15. And uh, again, I I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but being out at some of the um, protests around the Muslim ban in 2017, everything I was seeing was being youth led and clearly by youth who had tremendous organizing capacity and just plain knew what they were doing. So, you know, I feel like there's been this growing cadre of young people who are sharing skills with each other, teaching each other, learning from each other, some cases learning from older people too, Mm -hmm. but also have built this kind of organizing culture, which is really impressive. And, um, you know, it, it holds many of us to account at different times and that's a good thing. So yes, it should. That's exactly. True. So yes, that is why I'm feeling optimistic. Awesome. That gives me optimism too. All right. <laughs> well, I believe that is it from us at the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Marisol, for uh, joining me in the conversation today. Absolutely. Don't forget to rate and review our show wherever you listen to find podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org or join us on social media with the hashtag Compact Nation Pod. And uh, we will be uh, bringing you some other content related to the election, but also all of the kinds of topics we, we tend to focus on related to the ways that higher education connects to communities, our broader uh, political and social world, and the things that matter to people in their actual lives. So uh, we're excited to kick off season five, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. And just uh, for folks to stay safe, COVID's still real and still, you know, having an impact. And so uh, stay safe and be well. Facts. Agreed. Bye-bye. Bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, or the general vicinity. Our hosts are Marisol Morales and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper, a.k.a. Lady Leeper of Steventown. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening.